Just a couple of announcement things. Uh, you may have noticed that the words on the screen were different format from what we uh, have been doing. That's because um, our song show program work so our technical staff had to come up with a, an alternative way of showing them and it worked really good I thought so you guys did a good job back there in fact I thought it was better in some ways um, also just to let you know if you did not get a book for the uh, Sunday evening small groups uh, what Jesus demands from the world I have some more of those available there on the uh, the counter in front of Renee's desk so if, if you're still in need of one of those they're they're available back there. Um, <clears throat> for our message today, we are in the book of Romans, and just beginning, Romans chapter 11. We've recently had a couple of garage sales uh, trying to unload some of our treasures onto other people. I, uh, I was doing really good uh, Friday as uh, I was helping Sherry with the garage sale, um, getting rid of some of her stuff and making deals left and right. Sure, you can have this. And, but then this guy came up and he wanted something that had been mine <laughs> that <clears throat> I'm not sure how it even got set out in the garage sale and he wanted to talk, talk me down on price on this valuable item and you know when you go through you've been probably many of you through garage sales before what do, what do you keep what do you sell what do you get rid of also did a run to Salvation Army last night. <laughs> the, some stuff just wasn't worth anybody taking. But there's, but there's some things that are precious uh, and other things that are more like cast away. And how do you evaluate those things? And maybe they're different for different people too. But as God looks at us, we're all rejects. We are all cracked pots. And um, except for God's grace, we would all be castaways. There's a, a passage here in Romans 11 where Paul begins talking about what happened to Israel. I mean, since Christ came and they crucified the Christ, I mean, what's God going to do now about Israel? Is he just going to get rid of them forever say I'm washing my hands of you or does he still have a plan and working through this question is very significant because it starts touching on other the theological issues so it's we have to handle this carefully and understand what Paul is saying clearly so if, as we look at Romans 11 um, let's read down through uh, verse 5 to start with I say then has God cast away his people certainly not for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew 
Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And that's our, what we're going to cue in on today, this remnant according to election and why Paul is making these distinctions. The first question that comes up in the passage is, has God cast away his people? Well, based on what Paul has said in chapters 9 and 10 especially, you could see how one could easily come to that conclusion. God's just done with them. Uh, Even just looking at uh, a couple of samples in chapter 10, start at verse 1 of chapter 10, 1 through 3 here says... Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And then the last verse of chapter 10. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, you can understand in the face of such statements as these that someone might jump to the conclusion, God's done with them. God has cast away Israel and is not going to have anything to do with them again. And so Paul brings up that question for them on their behalf. I know this is probably what you're thinking, so let me voice it for you. Has then God cast away his people? There's a a theological importance to that question beyond even the passage here that we can think of it in terms of uh, past, present, and future. That is, uh, in the past, what about all those Old Testament promises that God made to Israel and the prophecies that God made about Israel in the Old Testament. If God is done with them, he has cast them away, never to deal with them again, what about all those things in the past? Or think of it in the present. What is Israel's relationship to God right now. Do they have a relationship? If so, based on what? Or in the future, does God have a plan for Israel in the future? And, and if you tie this all together, the, the prophecies concerning Israel that were given in the past, which have not yet come to pass, they're not yet been fulfilled. Is he going to fulfill those in the future? Or is he... Basically comes down to, is God going to be true to his word? 
And that's where then it come, becomes a very practical question. Is God really true to his word to us? I mean, what shall we say if we... It's one thing to look at Israel and say, okay, they blew it. In the Old Testament, man, they, they blew it. And then when Christ came, they didn't recognize him. Uh, they rejected him. He has a right to reject them. And no, he, no obligation to keep his promises. Well, from our point of view, humanly speaking, we think of things that way. Somebody wronged me. I'm not obligated to them anymore. God doesn't think that way. God is always true to his word. And so the practical application of this is, well, how about us? If, if we who have believed in Christ are now named his people, will he one day cast us away if we turn our back on him? Or will he be true to his word? You see, it has great significance for us as well. How, how does God react to those who are called by his name? called his people well Paul gives a definitive answer to this question in both, both verse 1 and 2 verse 1 I say then has God cast away his people and here's his typical way of answering certainly not or may it never be in no way is the answer there's no way that God has done that. And then in verse 2, he says it this way. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So we can, we can settle that question now. Whatever God's relationship to Israel is now, it's not one that we would typify by saying he has cast Israel away. I think it is better to say he has set them aside for the time but he has not totally cast them away let me try to visualize it for you a little bit um, uh, with my hand motions if, if you think of the hands being this is Israel and this is the church well at one time God was only dealing with, with Israel that was his people but when Christ came and was crucified and resurrected, then a church grew out of Israel, right? I mean, the first church was all Jews. Probably going to get in trouble with my hands here, aren't I? <laughs> They're clashing. There. But, but at first, the church was entirely made up of Jews. The church came out of uh, Judaism from Jerusalem. But as it grew, it became more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish. The point of this passage is there's always been a remnant, a part of the church that is, that is Jewish. And God has not cast away his people so that in some sense Israel has become, I mean the church has become Israel. Israel is still distinct from the church and there's a slight overlap. Those Jews who believe in Christ are part of the church and yet they're still ethnically Israelite. And God has set them as a group aside. One day he will take his church to heaven and he will work with his people Israel as a distinct people again during the tribulation period. 
So that's, that's how all this kind of fits together. Um, and this is what Paul is getting at. So there is a remnant according to election of grace. Um, verse 1, Paul says, um, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. This kind of reminds us of uh, Paul's pedigree given in uh, Philippians chapter 3 and uh, an Israelite of the Israelites. He is definitely Jewish. Uh, anyone doubt that Paul was Jewish? He, he was as Jewish as they could come. But he's also saying he's a believer. He's Christian. So is Paul Jewish or is he Christian? Yes. He's a Jewish believer. He is ethnically uh, Jewish, nationally uh, Israeli, but spiritually a believer, a Christian. So he is example number one. If this were a court of law, he would be put in evidence as a prime example of what he's, he's, he himself is saying. That it's possible for there to be someone who's in the church, but also from a Jewish background. And that, there's Paul. Um, then he gives the, ex the example of those whom God foreknew in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to give the example of Elijah. But let's think about this. Those whom he foreknew. Uh, the the uh, temporal prefix for, in foreknew means to know beforehand. He has not cast away the people that he knew beforehand. A reminder to us that these these people who are his are not his because they deserved it, earned it, or because of what family they were born into or anything about them. It's he knew them beforehand. And um, it's been a while since we've been back two chapters in Romans 9, but let's, we're going to use Romans 9 uh, to remind us of some things Paul said to set this up. So Romans 9, verses uh, 10 through 12. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come to Sarah, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. So, it, it was before they had done anything good or bad so that neither one of them could claim a right to being chosen that the purpose that God's working according to election might stand. Um, those whom God foreknew uh, that he set his love upon. If you go back even one more chapter to chapter 8 verse 29. <clears throat> Romans 8.29 says, For whom he 
foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So, starts with verse 29. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So, when we get back to Romans chapter 11, we, we need to remember some things he said about that idea in Romans 8 and 9, especially. Uh, Romans 11, 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, when you, you put together the idea that he foreknew them and the designation his people notice it's this God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew so they belong to him because he foreknew them he called them and claimed them as his own and so those people he has not cast away now that will be in for Israel right now a minority a distinct minority of of ethnic Israel but it's still part of Israel and he has not completely cast them away they're still part of them at least that he claims for his own he has in no way cast them out those he foreknew he will he has predestined to in fact be glorified now we come to the example of Elijah in verses 2 through 4. <clears throat> God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, here's the, another example. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am, am left, and they seek my life. So, this was a really low point in the time of Elijah when he thought truly that he was the last man standing for God everyone else had either gone over to the dark side or, or had been killed off and he, he alone was left and it certainly would have felt that way to him and his life was being sought even as he was saying this but what does uh Verse 4, what does the divine response say to him? How does God respond to that? I alone and left. God told him, I have reserved for myself. Notice that, for myself. Not for Israel, um, not for Jerusalem, not for something like this. Not for your sake, Elijah. I have reserved for myself. God always has a people for himself. I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, given the total population of Israel, it might not have seemed like a lot, but if you were Elijah and thinking you were the only one, that would certainly be encouraging to know, hey, there's 7,000 others uh, beside me who are standing for God, who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so, even what might be considered Israel's darkest hour when it seemed like they were down to one single person, God said, oh no, I've got many more besides that 
who I have called to myself, who I foreknew, who belonged to me, and it has always been that way. God always has a remnant from Israel who believe in him. And so we come now to the present situation in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, literally at the now day, at, at this very moment, Paul is saying, that not only was it true back in Elijah's time, but even right now today, even so now today, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. A remnant according to the election. Well, <clears throat> first of all, there would not even be a remnant had God not decided to work. Had he let all of the Jewish people go their own way, none of them would have been saved. Same is true for us. It's God's gracious intervention that, that saves anyone. And so had he not chosen to have a remnant, there would indeed not have been anything. That's to look at it in the negative side. Uh, put it in a positive way. God guarantees there will always be a remnant. He is the guarantor of the remnant. Even so then at, at the present time. Not only way back in Elijah's day, that darkest day did it seem like there was no one he had a remnant Paul is saying even so today there is a remnant according to grace and, and now uh, 2,000 years removed from Paul there is a remnant according to grace and I think I've told you before I know a number of Jewish uh, families who have become Christians and, and uh, they're part of the remnant God guarantees there is a remnant. And this remnant is always by God's choice. Even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God's election, God's choice. It, the election is according to grace. Just a reminder again that any of those Jews who might believe in Christ, just like any of us non-Jews who believe in Christ, it is always by God's grace. There's a remnant according to the election of grace. Choice is by His grace. And then in verse 6, there's a reminder of how grace works. <clears throat> and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So you, you can't have it both ways. It's either grace or works. It's, it's based on one or the other. It's not both. I was uh, greatly confused about this in my growing up years. I, I grew up in a, a Catholic church and um, was an altar boy and and all that and I went to catechism and what I heard was that it was it was works and grace it was fine to believe in God and in Jesus and so forth but you also had to do your part and it was the two of those things that kept you saved 
And so what it came down to is that this part really didn't matter so much. It was the works part. It was if I went to confession, um, if I received uh, uh, communion, uh, if I said certain prayers. And so the works began to take over my life. That, I mean, that's what was really important. And Paul is saying here, you can't mix the two together. Uh, they, they just don't mix. Because if, if it is by grace, by definition it can't be by works. Because grace is something that is freely given to you. You cannot deserve it. Grace is God's unmerited riches. It, you, you can't deserve it in any way. So no matter how much works you did, you could never earn the grace. It's totally by grace and not at all by works. Well then, of course, the confusing part comes in is, well, if it's not by works, what would induce someone who is saved by grace to do anything good? Well, the answer to that is someone who's truly changed inside, born again, that person being filled with the Spirit wants to love God, please God, live for God, walk for Him. God does it from the inside out, you see, instead of from the outside in. So that's how God works. And that's what Paul is saying here. If it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't really call it grace if you're adding works to it. All right. Now, finally, the, the hardening or blindness of the rest. And this is a, a, a difficult section, again, similar to what we ran into in chapter 9. Let's read verses 7 through 10. What then? <clears throat> Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. Well, that's pretty grim uh, assessment of the situation, isn't it? What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Now, to go back to what it seeks, you have to go back to chapter 931. Romans 931 tells us that. <coughs> But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. So, now when Paul says in, in Romans eleven seven, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What they were seeking was righteousness by the law. That somehow in keeping maybe a majority of the law or making up some of their own laws, 
they could obtain some measure of righteousness. They could at least be more righteous than their neighbors or something. They have not obtained it. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. So verse 7 picks up that train of thought. says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it. And the elect, those whom God foreknew, he brought by faith to receive him. They have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. Now, that word uh, blinded or hardened, your translations may say the rest he hardened. And those two words in Greek are very close together, may have had the same root at one point in their uh, etymological history, blinded and hardened. Here it seems like blinded is the better way to take it simply because of the context and the rest were blinded just as it is written he's given them a spirit of stupor and eyes that they should not see and so forth. So it sounds like blinded would be better. But when you go back to um, uh, chapter 9 he talks about Moses being hardened using the same kind of terminology. It could be either way blinded or hardened uh, will we'll serve our purposes. Uh, but the question then comes up, why, why were the rest blinded? Why were they hardened? I mean, why not just let them go on their own? And why that? So uh, we need to remember some passages that set this up. And first of all, Romans 9, 14 through 20. Let's go back to that. This is addressing the issue of the hardening or the blindness of the rest. Romans 9 verse 14 and following. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? In, in the, the question that, that preceded that, that, that brought that about was that God chose Jacob but not Esau. Well then... Is there unrighteousness with God in that he, he loved Jacob and not Esau? And again, the answer, certainly not. Then he gives this illustration. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, it's not based on how hard someone tries. It's based on God showing mercy. The idea being without God's mercy, we're all sunk. Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show, you, that I may show my power in you. And that my name may be declared in all the earth. Because there's something more important than Pharaoh's kingdom or Pharaoh's life. And that is God's glory. For this reason I've raised you up. That my name shall be declared in all the earth. Verse 18. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. And, on, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then. Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Well, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? And he then gives the illustration of the potter and the clay and so forth. But God's hardening is 
um, he doesn't harden people who who are innocent but rather people who have all their life rejected him turned their back on him he eventually hardens in that position and sometimes like with Pharaoh he even uses that hardness that stiff neckness to to his own glory for his own purposes also go back to Matthew chapter 13 Matthew 13 is um, in, the, in the midst of a series of parables that Jesus is giving concerning the kingdom. <clears throat> you might remember it was four short years ago that we were in Matthew 13. So you probably still have this memorized. But if not, we'll just remind ourselves of this passage. Jesus is speaking in parables and they want to know well why so verse 10 of Matthew 13 and the disciples came and said to him why do you speak to them in parables and he answered and said to them because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven but to them it has not been given why? Because it involves a gift. It involves the grace of God, a gracious gift. No one would understand at all unless God had opened their eyes. And he says, but to you it has been given to know the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. God has graciously decided to let you know that. But to them it has not been granted interesting thing about parables parables are designed to both reveal and conceal at the same time to those whom, whose eyes are open it reveals more about God and his kingdom to those who refuse God it's more confusing to them they just don't get it at all it both reveals and conceals and God does it that way on purpose to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God but to them it has not been granted verse 12 for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance but whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. And verse 15 is key to this. Why is that? Why do they see but they don't really see? Hear but they don't really hear. Verse 15, For the hearts of this people have grown dull. It comes down to a heart problem. Their hearts are not open to God, to truth, to faith. For, for the hearts of this people are grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes, they have closed. It's like this. If you're, if you're trying to talk to someone and they start going like this. 
you know the communication is probably not working well, right? Or if you want to show somebody something and they go, you know it's probably not going to, they're probably not going to see what you're showing them. That, this is the picture of, of those whose hearts are hardened toward God. He tries to speak to them and they go, tries to show them something and they have plugged up their own ears. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So that I should heal them. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Let let me tell you it's not because of your goodness but because of God's blessing and mercy that you saw that you hear verse 17 for assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it now one final passage is Psalm 69 but before we go there just remind ourselves go back to Romans 11 Um, Romans 11 and just remember the wording here of verses 8 through 10 just as it is written God has given them a spirit of stupor eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day and David says and here's what we're going to read in Psalm 69 let a table become a snare uh, excuse me let their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a recompense to them Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Now, let's go to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, and we will find the reference here in in verses 23, excuse me, uh, 22 and 23. Psalm 69, verse 22 and 23. Look at that with me. Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Similar kind of expression. Now, what's interesting about this is in every case where Paul is drawing out an Old Testament reference, it's not just because it's something that sounds like what he would want to say or appeal to in the Old Testament, but there's a reason in the context why. And so if we look back several verses here in Psalm 69, let's go back to verse 19. We'll look at 19 through 21. You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, and there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
Now to whom is that referring? Christ on the cross, right? As we find out, actually if we had the time to study Psalm 69, this is a, a, what's called a messianic psalm. There are several references here in, in Psalm 69 that we find in the Gospels that Jesus fulfilled or said these very words or it was said of him. And so this is a messianic psalm and verse 21 is from our vantage point it's easy to make this connection isn't it because we're after the cross and we know he said this on the cross and this was given prophetically through David many years before that they also gave me gall for my food for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink you think of that scene on the cross where, where this happens this was not something that they, were, that they were giving him out of pity because he says in verse uh, 20, there was none who pitied, none who had compassion. This is something that they were given out of mockery to the Son of God who at that moment was dying for their sins. And so no wonder these next two verses let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see make their loins shake continually. It's certainly fitting understanding the context to say that. We looked at verse 22 and 23. Now let's look at verses 24 through 26. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. We are never to take vengeance on others. God is the one that we say, God, you, you do it. Let pour your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. Verse 26. For they persecute the one you have struck and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Now, those words struck and wounded are the same we find in Isaiah 53, 5 of the suffering servant of Jesus Christ being uh, wounded for our transgressions. And the word wounded there is literally pierced through. They persecute the one you struck. They, they, uh, they esteem him smitten by God and afflicted. The one you struck. They persecuted. The one you wounded. You, the one you pierced through. They, they mocked that. They talked of the grief of that. So, just to kind of recap, what I'm trying to point out here of verse 22 and 23 is that it is surrounded by verses that refer to the crucifixion. And the point is, not just some theological debate. The point is, Christ on the cross and what do you do with him? 
and everyone who puts their faith in him has eternal life let's end this psalm with 34 through 36 well I just ask the praise team to come forward as we prepare for our final song here verse 34 let heaven and earth praise him the seas and everything that moves in them for God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. God will save Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem or generally for Israel. God, even though they deserve nothing but wrath, just like us, God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. Verse 36, also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The question then before us today is simply, do you love his name? Do you love him and all that he is? God is gracious to work in any of us. Those who are the remnant of Israel, they are only that because of the grace of God working in them. And God has not cast away his people. He is true to his word, and, and we can stand upon that today. He is true to his word to us too. And God will not cast us away. Those who believe in his name. Let's pray.